0: I think uh, most of us have read the biography or at least have heard stories about George Mueller, a very famous Christian uh, from the 1800s, died at 92, and he's mostly known uh, to be a man of prayer and a man who cared for orphans. In his lifetime, he built five orphanages that hosted and cared for over 10,000 orphans, just over 10,000 orphans. Within 50 years of his passing, England cared for over 100,000 orphans through the ministry that he established. Prior to his ministry, only 3,600 orphans were cared for. So clearly he left a mark on England as a man who was devoted to the orphan ministry. He did all that while preaching three times a week for 68 years. He preached in famous pulpits like Spurgeon's pulpit. He was the reason that Hudson Taylor committed to to spend his life in China. So he wasn't just a man sitting in an orphanage caring for children. He was a famous preacher, an individual who impacted evangelicalism of his day beyond London. At 70 years of age, he fulfilled his lifelong dream to become a missionary. And so for the next 17 years until he was 87, he traveled to 42 countries preaching at least once a day, and writers say that he reached nearly 3 million people in that 17-year period. All the while, in his lifetime, he read the Bible over 200 times. He brought in millions and millions of dollars into his ministry, never having asked a single person for money. In other words, he prayed in all that money. He was never hungry. None of his orphans were ever hungry. If you read the books, you probably know some of the stories, how amazing those stories are and how God answered his prayers. But as he reflects on his ministry, 92 years, he lived 87 years, very active. This is what he says. He doesn't talk about his converts. He doesn't talk about the number of orphans he served. He talks about his love and commitment to Christ. And from our perspective, from the theme of this weekend, if you think about 1 Corinthians 4, 2, we would say he was a faithful steward based on the productivity of his life right? It says, Paul says, Pastor John preached about it just a few days back. It's required of stewards to be found faithful. We'd say he was faithful, but this is how he measured his own faithfulness. This is what he says. Above all things, see to it that your souls are happy in the Lord. Other things may press upon you. The Lord's work may even be, may even have urgent claims upon your attention. But I deliberately repeat, It is of supreme and paramount importance that you should seek above all things to have your souls truly happy in God himself. Happiness is to be obtained through the study of the Holy Scriptures. God has therein revealed himself unto us in the face of Jesus Christ. Will you not do this, my dear brethren in Christ?" Along that you may do so, I desire that you may taste the sweetness of that state of heart in which, while surrounded by difficulties and necessities, you can yet be at peace because you know that the living God, your Father in heaven, cares for you. Above all things, make sure your soul is happy in the Lord. That's how he evaluated his life in regards to faithfulness. That's the question I want to talk about this afternoon. What does it take to be satisfied with God, to have your soul happy in the Lord? What does it take for us to pray? Psalm 63, verse verse one, my soul thirsts for you, my flesh yearns for you. And then to be able to say with David, just a few verses later in verse five, my soul is satisfied as with marrow and fatness. And my mouth in response offers praises with joyful lips. I think the answer to this question to this quest of being satisfied with God, to have your soul happy in the Lord is found in John chapter 10 verse 10. When Jesus shows up, he says, "I have come." This is his mission statement. "I have come that they may have life," you know this verse, and have it what? Abundantly, to the fullest, to the max. "I've come that people who follow him, his disciples, would have a life that is abundant. So I would say the way we find abundance in our ministry is by finding it in our relationship with Christ, in that life that he offers. Now, you have to understand this. The context of Jesus' statement in John 10.10 is in the parable or the really analogy of I am the good shepherd. Remember that, right? That's the context, the greater context of that statement. And through that metaphor, he's alluding back to what Jeremiah and Ezekiel say about the false shepherds, the false teachers in Israel. You remember those passages, the shepherds that only cared for themselves, that only fed themselves, that that, that neglected the people of God, that shredded the people of God. And then Jesus picks up the same language and adopts it for himself. Just listen to Ezekiel thirty-four fifteen. This is God speaking, making a promise to his people about a shepherd who will actually do the right thing. I will feed them in good pasture. Their grazing ground will be on the mountain heights of Israel. There they will lie down on good grazing ground and feed in rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I will feed my flock and I will lead them to rest. So God promises satisfaction, satiation, and rest. And then Jesus shows up, and what does he say in John 6, 35? He who comes to me will never hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. Matthew 11, 28, 29. You know this verse. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So now Jesus offers rest. That's promised in Ezekiel 34. He offers food and satisfaction that's promised in Ezekiel 34 as well. So Jesus fulfills these promises. So when he says come to me, his invitation is to come and experience this abundant life through Jesus, through a relationship with Jesus Christ. And then if you read the gospel and you get to chapter 17 and verse 3, Jesus defines eternal life, but just so you know, those are synonymous in the gospel of John life or eternal life. And this is how he defines eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. So Jesus says, I've come to give life, and this life is understood to be a knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ. So it has to do with an intellectual component of our relationship with God. But then you go back to the very beginning of the gospel, and you read John 1.14. The word became flesh, dwelt among us. Now you got this idea of abiding introduced in the incarnation. And verse 18, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the father, he has explained him. And you know that word because that's the word for exegesis. He has exegeted him and we understand what exegesis is. It's the systematic, consistent, precise, careful explanation of something. So, Jesus' coming is connected to him carefully, systematically, precisely explaining the character of God. Now, of course, in the the life of Christ, we see the attributes of God on display. So, now Jesus says, my life is an explanation of who God is, and I'm offering to you eternal life, which is you having a relationship with God. So, what I'd like to suggest this afternoon is this. Our satisfaction in Christ, our happiness of soul in the Lord is linked to this concept of abundant life in the gospel of John. And abundant life on a regular daily basis, the quality of that eternal life is linked to abiding. Because in John 6, 56, Jesus says, he who eats me, who eats my flesh, digests me Is the one who abides in me. So now you have this feeding on Christ, knowing Christ in other words, and abiding linked. That's the logical progression in the Gospel of John. So we are talking about the quality of your experience as it relates to your knowledge of Christ. In the Gospel of John, life and eternal life are in the present tense, which means eternal life isn't something that's promised for the future. You can see that in the synoptics. In the Gospel of John, eternal life is a present promise that is fulfilled. Resurrection, John 5 is very clear about that. Resurrection is the culmination of eternal life in the future. Eternal life is a present reality for every single believer. So, when we're talking about abundance and abiding, it is a present tense reality through the notion of eternal life. And it's, of course, developed more, most thoroughly. In John 15. So that's what I'd like to do with us this afternoon. Let's read John 15. You can follow along if you have your Bible or just listen as I read the first 11 verses of John 15. Jesus says, I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch in me that does bear fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, it will be done for you. My father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and prove to be my disciples. Just as the father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my father's commandments and I abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. Now we have to recognize that Jesus' use of divine metaphor is an allusion back to the Old Testament. Whether it's Isaiah 5 or Psalm 80 or Ezekiel, rather Jeremiah 19, all those passages present Israel as divine. You know those passages. Jesus comes and says, I am the true vine. So now there's a comparison being made. Israel could not fulfill what God demanded of it as a light to the nations, as bringing people to God. Jesus comes and says, I am the true vine. I will fulfill what Israel failed to fulfill. Those are true allusions that we should make and consider as we study this passage. But understand this, the primary function of the vine reference in this passage, it's merely a vehicle to explain abiding. You get that? Don't just now jump from John 15 to those three key passages in the Old Testament and say, okay, let's understand John 15 through those passages. There's an illusion, there's similarities, but the primary function here is this relationship, the intimacy that our vine and the branch have. That's what Jesus is doing with this specific image for our purposes and for the purposes of his disciples. Why? Because you have to remember the context in which Jesus spoke these words. Just look back to John 14. Jesus had just told his disciples he's leaving. And this is their response in verse 1. Their hearts are troubled. That's why he says to them, do not let your hearts be troubled. Because they are troubled. They're distraught. They're trying to figure out how is this ministry going to continue? How is life going to continue without Christ by my side? And so Jesus says, do not be troubled. Just believe in me, believe in God. And then he makes it super intimate. This is one of the most intimate metaphors in the gospel of John, in John 15. And so he says, the way we're going to stay in a relationship with each other is through this concept of abiding. You see, abiding is at the core of a healthy Christian life. It is central to your Christian experience on a daily basis, if you want to be certain that your life is glorifying to God, if you want to produce much fruit, as we just read, if you want to be confident that you are a true disciple, and if you want people around you to look at your life and they say, My pastor, my discipleship, by the way, it's my discipler, my Bible study leader is a true Christian. If you want to be certain that you have a life filled with joy, that's verse 11. All that is linked to abiding in Christ. In other words, you can't have joy. You can't have assurance. You can't have a fruitful Christian life apart from abiding. That's the logic that is built into this passage. And so Jesus says five times, abide in me. Twice, he says, abide in my love. Once, he says, let my word abide in you. So eight references to abiding, all linked to Jesus as a person. And then when John writes this down, probably 60 to 65 years after Jesus said this, John chooses grammar that accentuates the urgency of this challenge. If you've studied Greek, you know the aorist. It functions in multiple ways. But here, when you look at the context, there's a sense of urgency, abide. It's a command, abide in me. But then he changes to the present tense, which means there has to be a continuous, ongoing abiding relationship with Christ. But in order to stress the mutuality of this relationship of abiding, he goes in verse four and says this, abide in me and I in you. The omission of the verb, and I will abide in you, the omission of the verb is intended to bring the two persons in this relationship closer together. In other words, he doesn't have to repeat himself, if you abide in me, by default, I will abide in you. He says it in verse 4, and then he repeats it in verse 5, he who abides in me, and I in him. It's as if he can't say it fast enough, That that is how close that relationship of abiding is. And then he says it's personal. It's not just a corporate image. It is a personal call because he goes from the third person, verse five, for example, he who, to verse seven, if you abide in me. If you abide in me. Is that transition from the third to the second person makes it extremely pointed. It's as if Jesus looks at his disciples in the eye, And says, you, Peter, you, John, you, James, you abide in me. Have that intimate relationship that cannot be substituted for anything else. So as you think about abiding, here's a summary of it. It is a personal, intimate, close relationship between Jesus and the believer. It's extremely intimate. So then what's the definition of it? So here's my definition of abiding from the Gospel of John. To abide in Jesus is to be in a close, vibrant, life-giving relationship with him that puts oneself in a position to be held by Jesus and attaches oneself to Jesus by loving him and obeying him. Love and obedience. Now in verse five, dependence is mentioned. So now abiding has to do with dependence. Verse seven, prayer is mentioned. So now there's a component of prayer. verse nine, love is mentioned. And then verse 10, love and obedience is mentioned. So this is how you abide. If you ask me, okay, Mark, so how do I abide in Christ? Great. You depend on him through prayer. You love him and you obey him. That's the simple how. But I don't want to talk about the how today. I'd like to talk about why. Because abiding, as I'll show you later, is extremely difficult. It will cost you your life if you do it the way Jesus expects you to do it. So the question is, why should I? And we'll talk about various passages in John that indicate that abiding is costly and not everybody was willing to abide in Christ. So the why is what I'd like to focus on, And I'd like to say this, there are four results that flow from your abiding relationship in Christ. And those should function as motivations, as incentives for you to continuously abide in Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. And so the first one is fruitfulness. Jesus says, abide in me and you will bear fruit. Now notice this, Jesus doesn't say bear fruit. The command is not to bear fruit. The command is to abide so it's not focusing on the works as much as on the relationship which prompts the works and the works flow out of this relationship. There are six references to fruit in this single paragraph. In, rather, chapter 15. There's a few more later on. Six references to fruit in this passage. And Jesus says in verse five, unless you abide in me, you can do nothing. And I hope that's a regular prayer for each of us before you even begin to study your, for your sermon before you get up in the pulpit and pray, unless I abide in Christ, I can do nothing. It's a recognition of dependence and a recognition that the power truly comes from Christ and the Holy Spirit. But get this, when Jesus says, abide in me, and then fruit will flow out, he's not asking you to do something that he himself wasn't committed to. Flip to the left, just one chapter, chapter 14, and this is Jesus's reflection on his life as it relates to him working for God beginning in verse 10 do you not believe that I'm in the father and the Father is in me now remember this he's saying this to his disciples so by saying that in this with this question it kind of assumes they had doubt that's why in verse one he says believe in God and in me also there is still doubt in the minds of his own disciples the inner circle that he isn't exactly who he says he is. So in verse 10, he says this, if you don't believe that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me, the words that I say to you, I don't speak on my own initiative, but the Father, and here's the word, abiding in me does the works. Jesus didn't credit himself for all the fruit that he produced. It's the Father who was abiding in him. Verse 11, believe me, that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. So look, if you have a difficult time believing my words, then look at my works. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these, he will do because I go to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, that I will do. So that the Father may be glorified in the Son. So now you got glory brought in as well. We read that in chapter 15. The Father is glorified through your fruit, through your works, And Jesus says, the reason God was glorified with me is because of my works. You've got that parallel going on. Verse 14, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. We saw that in John 15 as well. Multiple parallels between these two passages. Jesus sets himself as an example and says, I'm encouraging you. I'm challenging you, commanding you to abide in me and you will be fruitful. And then look at my life. The father abided, remained in me, the same exact verb. And then look at the life of fruit that I produced. By the way, if you're faithful to abide in me, you will produce greater works. That's a promise that is hard to digest, I would say. Are we talking about quantity? I mean, how many miracles did Jesus perform? I don't think any of us in this room can outnumber Jesus' miracles. And this promise is by application to us as well. So what is it talking about when it says greater works you will produce? There's only one other passage in John that uses greater works. That's John 5. If you go to John 5 just for a quick minute. In John 5, you recall the story. Jesus healed a man who was lame for 38 years. The response to that is verse 16, Jews were persecuting Jesus because he did this on the Sabbath. And then you get down to verse 20. The father loves the son, shows him all things that he himself is doing. The father will show him greater works than these so that you will marvel. So now you got a reference. You are amazed that I just healed a man after his 38 year sickness. Rightfully so. But, If you hang around a little bit longer, you will marvel even more because a greater work is coming. What is that in the life of Christ? Verse 21, just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the son also gives life to whom he wishes. Jesus is talking about the resurrection by illusion his own, but directly He gives life to whomever he wishes, eternal life. We're talking about spiritual resurrection of the dead. That is a greater miracle. That is a greater work in comparison to this lame man being healed. So connecting these concepts, the greater work is a resurrection type of work. We are on the other side of the cross and the resurrection of Christ. We have the full progressive revelation, the closed canon, we're done here. We can look back at it. We can refer to it and say, we now preach the full canon of God. So anything we do today, the resurrection of spiritual souls through your ministry, man, that is a greater work because we're talking about the resurrection of the dead, according to Ephesians 2. That's the comparison here. It's not quantity It's this idea that we are on the other side of the resurrection and we are participants in resurrecting the spiritually dead. That's the mission that has been entrusted to us. And that's the promise in John chapter 14 for every single believer. And Jesus says, in this context of fulfilling the mission that has been given to you, if, verse 14, if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. That's the context of that promise. And the analogy again is God was working in Christ. Christ is working in you and you will produce much fruit. Go back to John 15. And we see that Jesus isn't the only one who's committed to producing fruit in you. Because in John 15 verse 2, this is what we read. Every branch in me that doesn't bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch in me that does bear fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. So Jesus is committed to working through you, and so is God the Father. So you have two members of the Trinity actively engaged in working in your life and working through your life to produce much fruit. Jesus as the vine is supplying the life. He sustains us. He feeds us. His life flows through us, Colossians 3. God is the vine dresser. God is engaged in your life as he cleanses it, as he prunes you, as he cuts the things off that are not helpful nor contributing to the productivity in your life. And the goal at the end of verse 2, so that this disciple would bear more fruit. So Jesus adopts this agricultural metaphor to explain God as the active agent who is pruning, who is trimming for the single purpose of making the branches more fruitful. But the motivation comes not only in a positive form, you will be more fruitful if God is working in you. That's a positive promise, isn't it? Sinclair's message was amazing on this. The call to holiness, self-evaluation, and then just follow Christ. And it'll happen. Of course, obedience is expected. Of course, study of scripture, and we'll see all that in this passage, the importance of that, and obedience and love for Christ. But... Hebrews 12, follow Christ, look to Christ, and he'll work with you. But there's a negative motivation here. Verse two, every branch in me that doesn't bear fruit, he takes away. Verse six, if anyone doesn't abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and it dries up and they gather them and cast them into the fire and they're burned. Just as we prune our gardens, for the sake of making them more, fruit uh, more, to flourish more, to be more productive, whether it's a tree or a rose or whatever it is. We do that. We prune back for the sake of flourishing. God is doing that in your life. God is the keeper of the garden in your life. And he's productive in it. And John says this, I want this to be memorable in the ear of every single hearer. Remember, this was read audibly and they just heard it. We have the privilege of seeing it with our own eyes. They heard it. And so he intentionally uses two words that sound very similar in this context. One is cut off, one is cleanse. Here are the words, just listen to the Greek. I Ray, cleansing, kasai ray cutting off. They sound similar, don't they? I re ray John wants you to remember, you are either being cleansed or you will be cut off. And hear it with your ear and remember that. Let that sense impress that on your mind. If you're not being cleansed, if you don't see this continual pruning in your life, you will be cut off. Of course, people have debated what this means. Some say it's losing your eternal rewards, but I would say the language here of cutting off of burning, being taken away is too graphic to merely signify loss of eternal rewards. Some say it's a loss of salvation, but John 6 and John 10 very clearly indicate that an elect soul is kept to the end. And John cannot contradict himself in his own gospel. Now they can, Jesus, as he spoke, spoke those words. So I would say the best understanding of this cutting off image is that we're talking about branches. That are associating with Christ and His church. But they're not attached. They're not abiding. And ultimately, they are not productive. And they dry up, as it says in verse 6 they're gathered, they're thrown into the fire, and the only purpose they serve is to be burned. Remember who He says this to the inner circle. God, man, this is not beyond a message for us. It's not just for our people who are a week old believers. It's to us. We need to reflect on our own state, our, the, soul of our, the state of our soul. Are we truly abiding in Christ or are we like Christmas trees? You can get the most beautiful Christmas tree on December 20th or 15th or whenever your tradition is the biggest, the most lush, put on the most beautiful ornaments. Spend as much money as you'd like, and it will be beautiful for how long? A month, right? Put it in the water, add all those additives to keep it green. But is it going to continue to flourish and produce fruit in your living room in a bucket? Or is it going to wither and die and shed all the needles, and then you have a mess in your house? and you throw it away in the middle of January. You can beautify your life with external fruit. Put on the best suit. Encourage your people to do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. But unless they and us, our people and we, unless we are actually abiding in Christ, we are withering, will be not productive, and we will ultimately be cut off. So what is the fruit that Jesus is talking about? Well, here in the immediate context, we're talking about love. In John 4, we're talking about evangelism. That's how the word fruit is defined in John 4. Of course, we know Galatians 5, fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. You've got multiple manifestations of fruit in our lives. So a living branch is a fruitful branch. And what happens in response to this? Verse eight, my father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, that you bear much fruit. This brings glory to God. Your life of fruitfulness is the best way to glorify God. So if you want your life to be meaningful, to actually last, have a lasting impact on eternity, Jesus says, produce much fruit but you can't do that apart from abiding in christ and get this john is not insane writing down and jesus is insane you will bear some fruit you'll bear a little bit of fruit no the word is much fruit it's in the emphatic in the original your life will be characterized by much fruit and in response god is glorified with your life this is the abundance of ministry that we're talking about. The abundant ministries that we pray for and ask God for to accomplish through us, it can only be accomplished if your life is dependent on Christ. You are abiding in Christ. You're putting in all your efforts to abide in Christ. And I think this promise in verse 8 perfectly complements Ephesians 3.20, not to him who's able to do far more abundantly beyond all. How many more superlatives can you add there? far more abundantly beyond all that you can ask or even think. You can't even imagine what God can do through you. According to the power that works within us, to him be glory. It's a perfect complement to John 15. Your life can be a life of productivity for the kingdom of God. It means we are willing to be deployed by God in our careers, some of you are bivocational, perhaps in your communities, in your families, of course, in your churches, because we are ambassadors for the kingdom of God. And the, the implication from much fruit is that you are not complacent, you're not reflecting on 10 years of ministry and saying, This is pretty good, this is nice or 20, or 40, or 50. Guess what Pastor John regularly says around the office? I'm not done yet. At the 50th celebration on February 10th, uh, of course, our church honored him, and it was a special day for our church. But you know what he said at the very beginning as he got up to the pulpit? This isn't my retirement. And he said that as a joke, but as a commitment as well. I'm going to go and keep going as long as God gives me life. And I think of the story of Charles Studd. You know the name, most likely. A man who came from a wealthy English home, had the future open to him, the best cricket player in in the world at that time. He could have whatever he wanted. Went to Cambridge, graduated. While at Cambridge, he went to a crusade from Deal Moody heard a call to missions, and decided to commit his life to missions. At his 25th birthday, he inherited what's equivalent to about $5 million U.S. dollars. As he prayed and thought about what to do with this money, he decided to donate all of it to ministry. So he gave some to D.L. Moody's ministry, which ultimately was used to start Moody, the Moody Institute. He donated some to the Salvation Army, to the China Inland Mission, and then himself became a missionary the fact that it was so much money is queen actually had to get involved and sign off on the donation. That's how radical of a move that was for his time. Biographers write about that decision, and they say he was a sound businessman with that decision. He looked at the money and said the best investment with this money is one that will reap eternal rewards. And so he gave it all away. He left a little bit behind to give to his fiancée as, uh, as a gift for their wedding day. And guess what she did with it? She also donated it. And then they both went to the mission field. And there's a story that uh, is written about him on the mission field. A journalist visited him just to kind of observe his ministry. And, and one evening, the journalist woke up and saw a CT stud in the corner by a candlelight wrapped in a blanket reading his Bible. It was in the middle of the night. And this journalist says, could you not wait until the morning to read your Bible? And Charles Studd responded, I sensed that there was something off in my relationship with Christ. So I'm reading through the entire New Testament to see what command I might have broken. Man, that is a commitment to abide in Christ. And God honored that commitment He wrote over 200 hymns. He translated the entire New Testament to an African language. He spent his life witnessing to the Africans and saw thousands come to Christ. You see, God says, if you abide in Christ, you will produce much fruit and God the Father will be glorified. That's the question. Are we giving our all? the maximum effort to abide in Christ because the results flow from that. But the model and the standard isn't George Mueller. It's not C.T. Studd. Guess who it is? Christ. In the gospel, John 17, verse four, this is what Jesus says in his final prayer before the cross. He looks at his ministry, a three-year ministry, and he says this, Verse four, I glorified you on the earth, having completed the work which you gave me to do. Done. We know on the cross in John 19, 30, he will say it is finished. The work is complete. The salvation plan is complete. So Jesus reflects on his own life and says, I did it. You gave me a work to do and I completed it. John 8, 29 says this. Jesus says, I always do what pleases the father. No exceptions, no negotiation, no contemplation, no delayed obedience. I always do what pleases the father. And then we read, and so he produced much fruit in his ministry. And Jesus reminds us in John 15, verse four, unless you abide in me, you can do nothing. Verse five, unless you abide in me, you can do nothing. Your life of abundant ministry is intricately tied in to your abiding in Christ. And what happens? Verse eight, you will bear much fruit and you will prove to be my disciples. You will experience assurance confidence in your own salvation and the people around you will look at your life and say my pastor is a believer he's a man of God he loves Christ and he follows Christ faithfully and so Jesus says you will experience assurance now you as a pastor most likely have counseled individuals who lack assurance Especially those who grew up in the Christian context, in their whole Christian home and the church. They're, they're, you can't see this radical transformation, and so they feel like my life has always been the same. I've always been a good kid. How do I know I'm a Christian? I can't point to a life of drugs and murder and anything else. I'm the same, I feel like. And so you begin to talk through that concept. I grew up here, and I actually went through a stage like that when I was 19. And it was serious enough to bring me to tears, wondering, am I a believer or not? And I was leading a Bible study at that point. I was translating MacArthur books into Russian and leading a Bible study to a bunch, about 20 to 30 Russian kids and loving it and thinking about ministry full time. And then all of a sudden after a retreat, a college retreat with our church, I came home thinking, I, I don't even know if I'm a Christian because the preaching was so, so high The expectation of holiness and obedience was so high that I looked at the standard, I looked at my life, and I said, I am not meeting that standard. And so good, strong, powerful, high and lofty sermons can lead us to a point of confusion if we begin to measure our salvation by our works. And people do that. I did that when I was 19. But the answer isn't, well, do more works. answer goes back to if you abide in christ you will naturally be fruitful and that will prove that you're a believer so this the counsel that we give is go back to christ is your affection for christ so strong so so consistent that it just overcomes your life and you're fruitful for christ Of course, it could be that the individual who's struggling with this isn't a believer. And so we do need to ask the questions of legitimate saving faith. And obedience is a part of that. And as we just saw, works is a part of all that. But those are flowing out of our love for Christ. And so John says, if you abide, you will produce works and you will glorify God and you will demonstrate that you are a true disciple. We have to understand this statement in the greater context of confusion and debate about Jesus and his identity. Three times in the gospel, Jesus calls on the people to examine their own relationship with him. In John eight thirty one, he says, if you remain in my words, then you're truly my disciples. So now your relationship with the word of God proves if you're a believer or not. John 13, 35, Jesus says to his disciples, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So love for other believers is a demonstration of genuine discipleship. And this is the third passage in John 15, 8. Those are the only three passages that focus in on genuine discipleship. Are you a true believer? Look at your relationship to the word of God, look at your love for other people, and then look at your fruitful life if you are a true believer. Now this confusion is extremely vivid And kind of reaches a climax in John chapter 6. In John 6, we know the passage well. It's it's Jesus saying, I am the bread that came down from heaven. He says that very clearly in verse 41. In response to Jesus' claims, verse 60 says this, therefore, many of his disciples, so Jesus had more disciples than just the 12. When they heard this, they said, this is a difficult statement, who can listen to it? And then in verse 66, it says, as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and no longer walked with him. So whatever Jesus was expecting, claiming, demanding, brought some in closer. And we'll see that in the rest of the passage, Peter says, you have the words of eternal life. So some of them drew closer to Christ. Others withdrew and no longer walked with him. What was Jesus calling for? What was he demanding? Verse 56, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Do you see what Jesus is expecting? Abiding. The call to abide in Christ is so 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 radical. So difficult. It requires such a commitment that some people said, "I can't follow. I'm done." They had the miracle at the beginning of chapter 6. They had free food and they said, "I'm done. I will not abide in Christ." That's why I said in the very beginning, abiding is a radical call and it has high expectations of every single believer because ultimately it will either confirm you as a believer or it would drive you away. Well, what is the, back in John 15, what happens in response to this call to abide and assurance? Love, verse nine, just as the father loved me, I also loved you, abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I've kept my father's commandments and I abide in his love. Love is the third result that flows out of this relationship of abiding in Christ. And it's the same love that the father has for the son that the son has for you and I. Nine times in chapter 15 Jesus mentions love. Love permeates the farewell discourse. Beginning in the first verse 13:1, it says this: Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, he would depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the max, perfectly. Telios. And then you go to John 17, the very end of the farewell discourse, the very last verse. I have made your, known, your name known to them and will make it known to them so that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. The first verse and the last verse focuses on love. And then you have multiple, 31 references to love in the farewell discourse. Guess what is the great theme in the farewell discourse? Love. Whatever started a section in the Greek writings and ended it became the spotlight, a key idea in the writer's mind. That is what's happening here. Love, everything is covered in love from Christ to his disciples, from God to Christ. What kind of love are we talking about? John 3, 35, the father loves the son and has given him everything. 520, the father loves the son and shows him everything that he's doing. John 17, 24, you loved me before the foundation of the world. John 15, 12 and 13, a love that gives up his own life for another. Romans 8, 32, God did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us and will freely give us everything. That's the love we're talking about. It's a love that gives all, shows all, and is fully committed until the end. Psalm 23, verse six says, surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life and I will abide in the house of the Lord forever. You've got love and abiding linked in David's mind in Psalm 23. And guess what Jesus does in John 14? I'm going to the father to prepare a place for you in my father's house. There are connections here between John 14, 1 through 3 and Psalm 23, verse 6. Abiding, the house of the Lord and love are linked. It's a love that zooms in, focuses in, latches on and doesn't let go for the rest of your life. That is what Jesus says, abide in this love. Let your lo- life be fully enveloped in this love. Don't forget this love when difficulties come into your ministries, when people leave, when there's a split, when your sermon When you see no conversions or baptisms or new memberships, the love of Christ doesn't waver because it is on par of the love that God has for the son. So if you're questioning God's love for you, guess what you're doing? You're questioning the commitment and the intensity of the father's love for the son, because John 15 is very clear. I love you, just as the Father loves me. How do you abide in this love? Verse nine, keep his commandments. John 14, four times, it says, love me, keep my commandments. If you love me, keep my commandments. What's the connection? Well, it's back in verse three. You are already clean because of the word which I've spoken to you. Man, don't miss this. Jesus goes back to obedience to his word. And then he alludes to this idea of cleaning. Why why the cleansing metaphor? Because he already talked about it in John 13, when he approaches Peter and says, I'm going to wash your feet. Peter says, no way. And Jesus says, well, if you're not going to let me wash your feet, you have nothing to do with me. And Peter says, okay, I want to shower. And then Jesus says, well, no, you're clean, but not all of you. Speaking of Judas, what was the distinguishing mark between the disciples who were cleaned by the word of Christ and then Judas? The answer is in John 8, 37. Jesus says this to the, to the Jewish people who are persecuting him. You are Abraham's descendants, yet you're seeking to kill me. Kill me. Why? Because my word has no place in you. If we do not let the word of Christ find a home in our lives, we can hear the the five sermons a day. We can follow Christ for three years. We can be around Christians all the time like Judas was with all the disciples. We can have the greatest responsibility in ministry. He was the treasurer of the group. You trust your finance guy, don't you? You better, otherwise you're not doing so well in ministry. Judas had all that. And he led the charge to kill Jesus Christ in the garden. Why? Because the word of Christ had no home in his life. Man, I hope that you are opening your heart to your own sermon. And to the word of God, as you sit there for 20 or more hours, thinking, applying, illustrating, Making, uh, creating the clearest sermon you can imagine. But are you actually saying, the word of God, come into my life, be a staging consultant, declutter my life, remove all the unnecessary things, clean it up. And the image here is a, it comes into your life and makes it a home. Some of you are staying in people's homes this week. Guess what? On Sunday evening, when you fly away, they'll be relieved. <laughs> No matter how much they love you, no matter how great of conversations you had, no matter how close you are, guess what? You're not the owner of that house. You were a guest, and you might have been a great guest, but guess what? They'll be happy when you're gone. I've hosted people year after year for Shepherd's Conference. I'm happy when they leave. <laughs> and they're my closest friends. One of them is sitting right there. <laughs> Why? Because it's my house. And he doesn't have any right to move the couch whichever way he wants to. (laughs) So is the word of God a guest or a homeowner in your life? That's the implication here. So if you have made, allowed the word of God to become the homeowner, it comes in, it changes, it radically transforms your life and your life is characterized by abundant ministry. Well, finally, this is the climax of the whole passage. The fourth result is in verse 11. These things I've spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. John 16, you will have joy that will never be taken from you. John 16, 24, you will have full and complete joy. John 17, 13, you will have complete joy. Man, do you not want a life of productivity? Amazing fruit relishing, enjoying on a daily basis the love of Christ? Do you not want assurance that you are going to heaven and the people around you can affirm that? And do you not want to experience joy every single time you breathe? If you want that, what Jesus is saying, you have to abide in me. Abundance in life, whether it's a personal relationship with Christ or the abundance that comes from your ministry commitment is only possible if you abide in Jesus Christ. And I think John, when he was writing this down, I can't imagine him not remembering what would it be like to experience the promise of Jesus in John 14. I'm leaving, but guess what I'm going? I'm going to prepare a place for you so that you may abide with me forever. It's the same exact word he might have thought to the transfiguration. And when Jesus unveils his flesh and shows himself in all his glory, what does Peter say? It's good for us to be here. Let's just create some tents and never leave. I think he was also encompassing the sentiment of John. It's so good to be in the presence of Christ, to abide with Christ. You don't want to leave. Now you can't have that experience today because eternal life is that. Knowing Christ, loving Christ, and enjoying Christ. But John then promises that is also a future promise. There are multiple layers in the gospel of John of abiding. He's abiding with you now. That's what John says. Jesus says, if you abide in me, I will abide in you. But then in John 14, verses 17 through 24, Jesus says, hey, the one who abides in me, I will disclose myself to him, Verse 21. And then verse 23, the father will love him and will also come and abide with him. And in verse 17, and the spirit will also come and abide with him. Jesus promises to bring the other two members of the Trinity with him into your life if you abide in Christ. And that never ends because he says, as I just mentioned, you will abide with me forever. And if you want to know what that's like, let me end our time together by briefly reading Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 4. I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the heaven, first heaven and first earth passed away. There's no longer any seed. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice. From the throne that said, behold, the tabernacle or the dwelling place of God is among men. He will dwell, same idea, among them. And they will be his people and God himself will be among them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There, is no, there will no longer be any death or mourning or crying or pain. Those things have passed away. That's John writing about a year later. That's what it's like to abide with Christ forever. But you can get a taste of that today by abiding with Christ through his word. Man, if you want that to characterize your life and your ministry, all you have to do is abide in Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for the challenge you've given to your own disciples and by extension to us. We want to abide in you. We want to experience the promises you've made to us in this passage. And I pray for every single man in this room, the faithful ones who are working hard in ministry, make their ministry more fruitful because they abide in you. And let them experience your love and the joy that you promise that is full and complete because they abide in you. We pray this because we want you to be magnified in our lives. Amen.